You're listening to the Mens Rea Podcast, and this is the story of the Lockerbie bombing. afternoon of the 21st of December 1988, passengers lined up in Frankfurt Airport to board a plane. It was a Boeing 727, a smallish aircraft that would bring them to London, where they would board a larger plane for the longer part of their journey. The flight was operated by Pan Am, at the time one of the largest international passenger airlines. Every country has an airline, their byline said. The world has Pan Am. But this particular flight, and its name, would be seared into the world's memory. This was Pan Am Flight 103. It was just days before Christmas. Most people were making a long journey home for the holidays. Airports were busy and this flight was nearly full. On board were 35 students from Syracuse University in New York. They'd been studying away from home for a semester at the London-Syracuse campus. The UN commissioner for Namibia, Bernd Carlson, was flying to New York to attend a signing ceremony for the New York Accords on the 22nd. James Fuller, CEO of Volkswagen America, was aboard having attended a meeting in West Germany, along with his marketing director. CIA Deputy Station Chief in Beirut, Matthew Gannon, was aboard, along with Major Chuck McKee, who was with the Defense Intelligence Service. They were accompanied by two special agents, who acted as security guards. The plane flew from Frankfurt to London Heathrow, where those aboard the smaller jet transferred, along with their belongings, to a larger one, a 747 named Clipper Maid of the Sea. Once the jumbo jet was filled with passengers from the first leg of the flight and those boarding in London, there were 243 passengers aboard, mainly from the US but also from the UK. 23 different nationalities were represented. There were also 16 crew aboard. The plane was piloted by 55-year-old Captain Jim McQuarrie. His first officer was Ray Wagner, 52, and they were accompanied by Jerry Don Averett, 46, as a flight engineer. All three were seasoned flyers and were based out of JFK. The cabin crew were based out of Heathrow and were 13 in total. Many of them lived in London, but some held dual citizenship to make their work a bit easier. Again, they were an experienced crew with the shortest service period being eight months and the longest at 28 years. Pan Am 103 pulled away from the gate at 6.04 that evening and began its taxi to the runway. It took to the air at 6.25pm, right on schedule, and began its ascent to standard flying altitude. They followed the normal flight path north. These paths take into account the curvature of the Earth, and so to cross the Atlantic you head up and over, 
passing near to Iceland and Greenland before coming down the east coast of the US. So Flight 103 made its way up through the English countryside. It would skim across the craggy Scottish west coast before flying near to the Arctic Circle, across the Atlantic. Radio contact was made with air traffic control at 6.58 and the plane crossed the Firth of Solway at 7.02 and was cleared for transatlantic crossing. The clipper made of the sea was flying at 31,000 feet and just under 500 miles per hour. But that message, clearing them to carry on from Shamwick Ocean Area Control, went unanswered. Literally milliseconds later, the black box or the cockpit voice recorder, which is actually bright orange, recorded a loud bang. At the same time, the single radar blip that had been Flight 103 was replaced with five radar echoes, fanning out from where the aircraft had last been. The noise was in fact a bomb that had been placed in the hold of the aircraft. It punched a 20-inch hole on the left side of the fuselage. The plane depressurized quickly, pulling cables from the mechanics of the plane with the air rushing out. It was catastrophic damage. Within seconds of the blast, the nose of the aircraft was pulled from its main body. It crashed to the ground on a hillside, throwing debris in a large one-mile radius around. The fuselage somehow continued to coast along under its own momentum after losing the nose of the plane, until it had come down to about 19,000 feet. It then hurtled straight down at the land below it, the small town of Lockerbie. One section of it crashed into a number of houses in Sherwood Crescent, creating a huge crater after the fuel within it exploded. It was three and a half miles north and west of where the nose had come to land. The impact in the housing estate registered at 1.6 on the Richter scale, and the explosion produced a fireball so bright that many thought the nearby nuclear plant had exploded. Yet another piece of fuselage had landed over a mile away from this one in Park Place. Debris was spread miles and miles away over the surrounding countryside. Another pilot taking his plane from Glasgow back down to London reported to air traffic control that he could see a huge fire on the ground. Within that fire were what had only minutes before been a number of houses. Number 13, Morris and Dora Henry's home. Number 15, the Somerville family, Jack and Rosalind and their kids Paul and Lindsay. Number 16, Thomas and Kathleen, who were with their daughter Joanne. Their young son Stephen had been at a near neighbor's house, and their eldest son Daniel lived away from home at the time. All these homes and these people were now gone. Eleven people on the ground were killed when the plane came down. The small emergency services in Dumfries and Galloway received a spate of panicked calls about something that had just happened. An explosion, a fire, a plane crash. Whatever it was, it was bad. Police and fire engines converged on the scattered wreckage, hoping to find people, survivors, and treat them, and to keep the rest of the town safe. Soon, the first responders were joined by their colleagues who had come on their days off, and officers from nearby areas. It was all hands on deck. One woman who was working that evening at a local petrol station said, quote, 
It was a low rumble, like thunder. That came first, then the whole sky lit up. I was absolutely petrified. Suddenly, everything started falling down. Lumps of plane, bits of seatbelts, packets of sugar, bits of bodies. There were burning bits all over the forecourt. It seemed to shower for ages, but it was only about five minutes. End quote. The scenes that night were like something from a scene of hell. The wreckage and death was everywhere. People went to look outside to see what had happened and fainted with the shock. Other houses were destroyed by smaller fragments of metal from the sky. News began to spread fast that a plane had gone missing. The Royal Air Force and the Army arrived on the scene along with backup from neighbouring emergency services. The local school was used as a base to try and coordinate the efforts, which started as one with the main aim of rescue, but quickly became one of disaster management and recovery as the full carnage of the crash was assessed. The London Met established their own investigation and then joined the Scottish authorities who took the lead. This is where the Air Accident Investigation Branch also ended up establishing their base in a secure area of the school, along with many of the news crews that had set up camp in the small town too to cover the tragedy as it unfolded. The town hall became a makeshift mortuary, and it began to fill quickly. The primary focus of the police and other responders was to locate and identify the remains of victims, which was difficult in some cases. Some of those who had been in the crash were found still strapped into their seats, and in other cases there was little left to identify. The weather, the spread of the debris from the crash, and worries about wildlife interfering made these searches particularly difficult and meant that they required speed. Alongside that, an investigation was ongoing into the cause of the crash. They were also out looking for the black box, which would record anything that had happened on the plane and give a better indication of what had gone wrong. It was found on a hillside near to the town, and the Air Accident Investigation Branch made quick work of going over the information contained in it. It revealed that nothing had gone wrong with the aircraft, and there were no problems with the flight itself, but there was an audible explosion recorded. There was no reason recorded in any of the other data which would explain it, and so it was concluded that this had been a bomb. Terrorism. The 1980s international political climate was much the same as it is today, and when it was apparent that this was an act of terrorism, eyes turned to the Middle East. There were a few groups that sprung to mind, the Popular Front of the Liberation of Palestine General Command, the Palestinian Liberation Organization, the Abu Nidal Organization, Palestine, Libya, Iran, They all held potential suspects for the planting of a bomb. At the time, there were talks ongoing, hoping to lead to a peace accord in the area, but, as had been the case for years, the area was unsettled. In fact, there had been bomb threats in the run-up to the Lockerbie disaster. On the 5th of December, the FAA, the Federal Aviation Authority in the US, had issued a security bulletin on foot of a phone call received by the US Embassy in Helsinki. The man who called was said to have a Middle Eastern accent 
and told the embassy employee that a bomb was to be placed aboard a Pan Am flight from Frankfurt to the US. He said that this would be done by the Abu Nidal organization, which was a dissident Palestinian group. The threat was taken seriously and it was passed on to a number of other embassies and US airlines, including Pan Am. Days after the crash, a Finnish newspaper reported that the bomb was to be placed on board by a woman who would not know of its existence. There were a number of incidents back and forth between various groups in response to either US or UK actions taken in the Middle East. A ferry had been attacked in Greece. A policewoman had been shot outside the Libyan embassy in London. Passenger plane was shot down in the Persian Gulf. Either way, now that it was known for sure that a bomb had been placed in the aircraft, the crash site was now a crime scene and a full-blown investigation began. The Crown was assisted in Scotland by an FBI task force and officers went about collecting pieces of wreckage and debris, as well as personal items from baggage now strewn across the countryside. The black box was further analysed to try and determine what damage had been caused by the explosion and witnesses to the crash were tracked down and interviewed. With the help of satellite photography and helicopter surveys, four million pieces of wreckage and 10,000 pieces of debris were recovered, and near to 15,000 witness statements were taken relating to the disaster. The remains, pieces really, of what was later confirmed to be a Samsonite suitcase were recovered, it was determined that this had been nearest the blast hole in the aircraft. It had residue from the explosion and blast marks on it. It was thought that the explosive device had in fact been a tape player, which had near to 450 grams of a Semtex-type plastic explosive placed in it, with a timer set. A similar device had been used by the PFLPGC in an attempted bombing in West Germany only months before. A circuit board was discovered in the collar of fragments of a grey man's slalom brand shirt. It was part of what remained of the timer used in the device and was recognised as a model called MST-13. Again, a similar device had been found before, this time in the possession of two Libyan nationals in Senegal in February of 1988. There was a casing that was found that was determined to have come from a Toshiba cassette tape player. It was also noted by investigators that the timer that had been found was manufactured in Switzerland, but primarily exported to the Libyans. It wasn't the kind used by the PFLPGC. The ones they used wasn't terribly reliable, as it could be affected by temperature and other conditions, and could only be set for a relatively short time. This one, the MST-13, could be set for as long as 416 days in advance. The cassette player remains that were found also had links to Libya. Over 75% of all of those particular models had been sent to that country. Within the debris, there were also the remains of items of clothing, identified as having come from the brown Samsonite case that had been manufactured and purchased in Malta. An item of children's clothing, a baby grow, as well as a brown material that was later identified as being from a pair of men's trousers, were traced back to a factory on the island, 
and when records were checked, the trousers were linked to a shop in Slima, Malta, called Mary's House. It was owned by the Gauchi family, and Tony Gauchi and his brother would go on to provide statements to the authorities about the clothing's purchase. A fatal accidents inquiry was also held in Scotland. These are similar to the idea of a coroner's court, and are generally held after a trial, but this wasn't possible in the case of the bombing, and so the inquiry went ahead regardless. It took place over 55 days between October 1990 and February 1991, and included representations from lawyers acting for victims groups and Pan Am, as well as the British Airports Authority and the Department of Transport. The purpose of the inquiry was to establish the facts of the incident on the balance of probabilities and, if appropriate, to advise what further action might be taken. Sheriff Principal John Mowat oversaw the proceedings. The Crown's case was that the brown Samsonite bag had contained the cassette player, which had inside it a Semtex-type explosive, and that it had been loaded onto an initial flight as unaccompanied baggage from Malta to Frankfurt and had then passed on to the flight to Heathrow. Unaccompanied baggage was at the time supposed to go through extra security checks, as in the main, bags went with people. Mr. Mowat seemed to accept that Pan Am's practices had not differed from any other airline, which helped them to avoid liability. Victims' families were disappointed by this. However, the baggage had not been checked when it was put onto the flight in Frankfurt, nor had it been accounted for in Heathrow. It hadn't even been x-rayed or weighed. Mr. Mowat was unable to establish to any degree of certainty where the bomb had originated from, Malta or Frankfurt. He made recommendations that better security measures be put in place by airlines and that it should be ensured that a situation involving unaccompanied baggage making it onto a flight could no longer occur. Later, in a US federal court, Pan Am and two of its subsidiaries would be found guilty of willful misconduct due to lack of proper security screening. Throughout the investigation, each of the families of the victims was approached and interviewed. It was obviously distressing for them to be questioned about their deceased loved ones, but it was important to ascertain whether any of the passengers themselves could have specifically been targeted particularly given that there were U.S. military and intelligence aboard the flight. But it was determined that there was no connection to any of the individuals on Flight 103. Officers working on the case in Scotland had to travel worldwide to gather their evidence and witness statements. One of the places they went was the shop owned by the Gauchis. Scottish officers visited the shop in Malta on the 1st of September 1989. Initially, they spoke to Tony Gauchi's brother, who said he had no idea what they were talking about. But Tony was in the back of the shop and overheard what was going on and shouted that he could help them. Tony told the police that he remembered selling a pair of these particular trousers to a foreign man. He'd been in the shop on his own that day as his brother was off watching AC Milan play an important match. The shop was somewhat off the main road and therefore it was usually frequented by locals, and so this foreign man stood out. Not only that, but the man had made a large purchase. Gauchi told the authorities that this had happened in October or November of 1988. Gauchi said that the man was in his 50s, and about six feet tall, 
of sturdy build with black hair and was definitely Libyan. It seems an oddly specific identification to us, but Libya isn't all that far from the island and there would seem to have been a lot of traffic between the two countries. On top of that, the shopkeeper was familiar with the sound of Arabic spoken by Libyans and was able to identify his nationality from that. The man appeared to Mr. Gauchi totally unconcerned with the items that he was purchasing, and it was a strange collection of items too. Two pairs of men's trousers, a tweed jacket, a cardigan, and a baby grow. The man paid 75 and a half Maltese pounds for the purchase, but quickly returned to the shop to buy a black umbrella as it was raining that day. Gauchi thought that the man got into a cab up the road, but couldn't be sure. The timing of this sighting and the purchase seemed to check out with the timeline of the bomb being placed. Subsequently, on the 14th of September, Gauchi was brought into police headquarters in Malta and asked to view some photographs. He said that one of the pictures he was shown was in fact similar to the man who had been in his shop, but the picture was of a younger man, and so it couldn't have been the same guy. Gauchi would twice more be shown stacks of photos to see if he could identify the man who had bought the clothing found in the wreckage of the plane in Lockerbie, on the 31st of August and the 10th of September 1990. None of the 50 photos he was shown over the two visits were the man that Gauchi saw, and again, he didn't recognise any of them. He did say, though, that he had recognised a man whose picture he'd seen printed in a newspaper. The piece was about Lockerbie, and had named that man as the bomber. He was a Palestinian named Abu Talb. On the 15th of February 1991, Tony Gauchi was interviewed once more. This time, he was again shown a number of pictures. He said that one was most similar to the man he'd seen. The picture was of a man named Abdelbasset al-Megrahi. But Mr. Gauchi pointed out to the police that it had now been a number of years since the man had been in his shop, and he still thought that the Palestinian man he'd seen in the paper looked most like the man he'd seen. At the time of the bombing, al-Megrahi had been 36 years old, not quite the 50-year-old man that Gauchi had initially described. There were other investigations to be done in Malta too. They needed to look into the flight that had occurred between Malta's Luha Airport and Frankfurt on the 21st of December, the one assumed to have transported the bomb. German authorities had computerised records showing that an item of baggage from that flight had indeed been transferred over to the Pan Am plane for the first leg of Pan Am Flight 103A. All of the passengers on that plane were checked, with particular attention paid to those who would be travelling on to Heathrow and the US. But again, no links were found. And so the Scottish officers moved on to looking at staff at the Maltese airport, security staff and baggage handlers. They also reviewed the processes involved in security checks and the movements of baggage around the airport, But again, nothing was found that would connect anything to the bomb that had somehow gotten aboard Pan Am 103. In fact, the security at Luha was found to be of a higher standard than at Frankfurt and Heathrow, given that the airport had had issues with terrorism in the past. 
the military was actually responsible for internal security at Luha. The only strange thing was that their logbook from the 20th and 21st of December that year was missing, and it was suspected that it had been accidentally destroyed. There was no obvious explanation for how an item of unaccompanied baggage had made its way from Malta to Frankfurt. There was a possibility that the item had been marked as lost luggage and was therefore rushed to its destination, but there were no records to confirm that or otherwise. The manufacturers of the timer, whose remains had been found, were also interviewed. Edwin Ballier told Scottish police that a Libyan company called ABH also had offices in their building and that there was a partner at the company who often visited Malta. His name was Abdelbasset El-Megrahi. This name was scrutinised and records were found showing that Al-Megrahi had entered Malta under a false name with a false passport and stayed in a hotel near to Tony Gauci's shop, in the window of time that authorities believed were critical to their investigation. It was odd, he'd been in Malta only a few weeks previously, using his own passport, but on the 16th and 17th of December, he'd used a passport in the name of Ahmed Khalifa Abdusamad. It was a passport he'd only used a few times before, and it was never used again once he'd left Malta for Tripoli in December of 1988. Al-Megrahi had his own private business interests, and hence his position with ABH, but this kind of arrangement was often used by high-ranking Libyans to try and get around the sanctions that were in place against the country under Gaddafi's reign. Al-Megrahi had links to the regime himself, He was a friend of Gaddafi's head of intelligence and belonged to the same clan. He had also been head of security for Libyan Arab Airlines and had been responsible for training the Libyan Security Service staff, also known as the JSO. There were known links between the JSO and terrorist activities, both in the carrying out of attacks and the support of same. After that position, El-Megrahi had moved to the position of director of the Centre for Strategic Studies in Tripoli, but he still had links with his former job. Through El-Megrahi, Scottish authorities came across the name of Laman Fima. He had been the LAA manager at Luha Airport. They wanted to interview him, but he'd returned to Libya and was beyond their reach, and so instead his flat was searched. There, police found a diary from 1988. There were a number of entries for early December of that year relating to taking baggage tags from Air Malta and noting when Adele Basset would be arriving to town. Both FEMA and Al-Megrahi had security passes that would allow them airside access at the airport and a call had been logged from the Holiday Inn that Al-Megrahi had been staying at to FEMA at 7am on the 21st of December the same day as the Lockerbie disaster. By this time in February 1991, Tony Gauci had been re-interviewed and this time had identified Al-Megrahi as the man who had been in his shop. On the 13th of November 1991, after an extensive investigation by the police in Scotland, assisted by the Crown Office, the FBI and the US Department of Justice, Indictments against both Abdelbasset El-Megrahi and Lamin Khalif Fima were issued for the bombing. But they were both in Libya. 
a trial seemed unlikely. There were no extradition treaties in place between Libya and either the UK or the US, and a request to have the two men simply turned over for trial was refused. A counteroffer to hold a trial in Libya was made if the evidence was handed over to them, but the US and UK did not want to hand over their evidence and didn't believe that a trial in Libya would be effective. As time went on, the trial became a bit of a political football internationally. Sanctions against Libya had been ramped up, meaning that the country had difficulty accessing resources such as medicines and replacement parts for vehicles and machines, all the while the economy was retracting due to the falling price of oil. Nelson Mandela sought to help find a solution by offering South Africa as a neutral venue for a trial, and the UN also sought to have some solution put into place given the impact the sanctions were having on people in their everyday lives in Libya. But as the mid-1990s passed by and the threat from Islamic fundamentalism reared its head in the Middle East and North Africa, Libya became to be seen as one of the countries that stood against this new threat. The UK government was also being lobbied by business interests who wanted to extend trade into the area. The main problems seemed to be finding a court and venue that would be acceptable to all the parties involved. Libya would never agree to a trial held in the US, and the US and the UK to a lesser extent didn't seem amenable to a trial held in a so-called neutral third-party country. At this point, the International Criminal Court in The Hague was not yet established, And either way, the US and Libya would both later refuse to take part in any proceedings there. A compromise was needed. The configuration that was eventually agreed upon was that a trial would take place under the rules of Scottish law in a third country. By August 1998, a trial in the Netherlands was agreed to by all parties involved. Strangely enough, before the trial was to take place, it was agreed that Libya would pay reparations to the victims' families and that the UN would have oversight of the incarceration of the accused. Sanctions in place against Libya would then therefore be lifted. But there were still issues. Al-Megrahi and FEMA had engaged legal representation in various jurisdictions that it was thought a trial could be likely. Their Scottish legal team, Alistair Duff and advocate Donald Macaulay, had advised them not to offer themselves up for trial unless it was to be international in nature and held in a third country. But as diplomatic and political manoeuvres were made, this impacted the actions of the individuals involved. Their initial Libyan lawyers were replaced, and as the trial date was set, arrangements were put in place by Libya for El-Megrahi and FEMA to travel to Camp Zeist in the Netherlands. All of this seemed to be occurring independently of the advice that the Scottish lawyers had given their clients. It was a fait accompli. The former American Air Force base of Camp Zeist was converted for the purposes of hosting Scottish justice. The building was adapted to copy the layout of a Scots court, with a podium for judges to sit and areas on either side set up for the lawyers in attendance. The courtroom proper was protected by blast-proof glass, and the proceedings were piped into public and press areas so that they could be heard. 
there were also large screens installed to better view the trial as it unfolded. Despite the fact that Scottish law was to be the basis of this criminal trial, there were some modifications made to suit the nature of the crime involved. Rather than have a jury of 15 civilians, a three-judge panel was convened, with one spare to sit as an alternate should anything happen to incapacitate the other three. And rather than a strict regime of what could be published regarding the trial as it was ongoing, the media were accommodated in their own room, and people were brought in to liaise and explain some of the idiosyncrasies of the Scottish court. The live broadcasting of proceedings was still banned, however. In any event, it would prove impossible to restrict reporting to a simple recounting of what had occurred in the court on any given day, given the international dimension of the case. Al-Megrahi and FEMA arrived in the Netherlands on the 5th of April 1999 and were handed over to Scottish police by the Dutch authorities. They were formally charged with murder, conspiracy to murder and breaches of the 1982 Aviation Security Act. They were then detained at Camp Zeist in specially built accommodations. These weren't like regular prison cells, more like apartments, and they were also provided with kitchens in which to cook their own meals albeit with constant observation and under lock and key. First, there was a formal identification parade. Some local men from the Arab communities volunteered to take part, and so these men stood in a line dressed in identical tracksuits with those accused of having killed nearly 300 people. Tony Gauci was to make the identification. Objections were raised and noted that the accused's pictures had previously been shown to Gauchi and printed in papers, but the identification went ahead. After a few tense minutes, Gauchi identified Al Megrahi as the man who had been in his shop in December of 1988. Proceedings finally began on the 3rd of May 2000. Lord Sutherland, Lord Coolsfield, and Lord McLean, joined by Lord Abernathy, were some of the most senior judges in Scotland. The defence was represented by Bill Taylor and Richard Keane with Alan Turnbull and Alistair Campbell for the prosecution. On the sidelines sat yet more lawyers that made up the full legal teams for both sides and officials from the Department of Justice in the US. The Crown presented their case that the bomb had originated in Malta with FEMA and that Al-Megrahi had provided some of its materials. It was a circumstantial case, but it was backed up by forensic evidence gathered from the crash site, witness evidence, and documentation that the men on trial were in a position to place the bomb. Those involved in the investigation outlined for the court what the evidence had told them and where it had led them, from Scotland to Malta to Libya, and ultimately to the two men who now stood trial. The defence team put forward a case that it simply wasn't their clients, and that there were a number of other known organisations that could be responsible, including the Palestinian Popular Struggle Front or the PFLPGC, for instance. Neither FEMA nor Al-Megrahi took the stand in their defence, as was their right. It was up to the Crown to convince the panel of judges that, beyond a reasonable doubt, they had conspired to place a bomb that had killed hundreds. The judgment was given on the 31st of January 2001. Lord Sutherland read out the 80-page document 
to gathered lawyers, officials, and media. The judges accepted that the suitcase had contained a bomb and that it had likely originated in Malta and been transferred to the Pan Am flight in Frankfurt, though it was totally unclear how this had happened. They criticised one of the key witnesses brought to the court, who the prosecution said was a former JSO employee who had also been employed by LAA at Luha Airport. He had presented information that was damning to the men on trial. But the judges noted that there were CIA cables turned over to the defence which described this man, Abdul Majid, as a fantasist. Further, it emerged that Majid had really just wanted out of Libya. He had ended up in the American Witness Protection Programme with a monthly allowance. The very fact that he was a paid informant meant to the judges that anything he had to say was suspect. With regards to the evidence given by Edwin Bollier from Mebo, the company that made the timer, the justices were satisfied that his company had in fact supplied the MST-13 timers to the Libyan military, and that these timers had been designed on the request of two individuals who had held upper-level positions at the JSO and who had links to al-Megrahi. Balier had travelled to Libya a number of times and had met with al-Megrahi. With regards to the testimony given by Tony Gauci, the judges were able to agree on two things given the various statements he had made to the authorities, and the inconsistencies in those and his evidence given at trial. They said the only thing that could be said for certain was that Gauci's recall of the items purchased at the shop were correct, and that the man who'd made the purchase was Libyan. The panel did their best to tease apart what he had said, and decided that the date of the purchase had likely been the 7th of December, given the football match and the weather on the day. In relation to the identification, they seemed to find that Gauchi was understandably and consistently unsure about making a definite identification, but that it had been truthful in that, at each opportunity, Gauchi had picked out the man who was most similar to the one who had been in his shop. He'd picked out Al Megrahi once during police questioning, and had twice identified him in person, at the identity parade and in the courtroom. When the justices moved on to consider the case put forward by the defence, they had to consider whether there was a likelihood that the bombing had been carried out by another organisation. In relation to the PFLPGC, they acknowledged that there had been terrorist activity in Germany in and around the time of the bombing by the group. However, they said that the devices used by the PFLPGC differed from the one used in the Lockerbie bombing. The cassette player was a different model than used by the Palestinian group, and so was the timer. The bomb that had brought down the plane was a much more sophisticated device than those that had been found in Germany. The PPSF and its possible involvement was dealt with by way of reference to the evidence given by Abu Talb, a former member who was convicted for his involvement in bombings in Copenhagen and Amsterdam in 1989, and who was in prison. He had been in Malta in October 1988 and told the court that his organisation had links to, and often worked alongside, the terrorist cells in the PFLPGC. 
Here, the justices again thought that the kind of device planted in the Lockerbie bombing was simply beyond Taub and his associates. And so, they moved on in their judgment to the question of guilt or innocence for the two men before them. In relation to FEMA, the three judges said that the most persuasive evidence against him were the diary entries relating to al-Megrahi and the tags for baggage. However, they placed limitations on the inferences that they could draw from the circumstantial evidence. They said that they could conclude nothing from the fact that FEMA and al-Megrahi had travelled back to Malta together on the 20th of December from Libya, and that they could not assume that FEMA had been at the airport on the 21st. It was decided that there was insufficient evidence to convict him. When it came to al-Megrahi, however, it was a different story. The evidence that he had had and travelled on a false passport around the time of the bombing, as well as Gauchi's testimony, sealed his fate. He'd been in the shop, they said, and the justices allowed themselves to make assumptions based on the position that al-Megrahi had held with the Libyan airline. In their judgment, they said, quote, We are satisfied that the evidence of the purchase of the clothing in Malta, the presence of that clothing in the primary suitcase, the transmission of an item of baggage from Malta to London, the identification of the first accused, albeit not absolute, his movements under a false name at or around the material time, and other background circumstances such as his association with Mr. Bollier and the members of the JSO or Libyan military who purchased MST-13 timers, does fit together to form a real and convincing pattern. Al-Megrahi was found guilty. He was handed down a life sentence, the mandatory sentence in Scotland for murder. But he would remain in Camp Zeist for some time yet his lawyers immediately lodged an appeal. Though an appeal is often a matter of course within any justice system, this appeal posed its own challenges to the Scottish legal administration. They'd opted for a trial without a jury, so in order to hear an appeal, an even larger panel of judges would have to be convened. Five totally new judges were needed. None who had originally sat for the case could take these positions now, but eventually the panel was put in place. Again, due to the fact that there had been no jury in the original trial, the facts of the case would also be determined by the appealed judges, who would usually only consider matters of law. But everything that the three justices had initially ruled on would have to be considered. The appeals process also differed in that it had been decided by the Lord Justice General that the proceedings would be broadcast live by the BBC and would be available on the internet in both English and Arabic. The defence put forward a number of grounds of appeal but primarily argued that there had been a miscarriage of justice. McGrahy's lawyers argued that the justices had come to a conclusion that a jury would not have. They gave weight to certain parts of evidence and dismissed others, despite acknowledging a lot of the evidence that formed the basis of their decision was problematic, such as Gauchi's inconsistent memory. McGrahy's team also tried to bring in new facts. They had discovered in the previous months that security at London Heathrow had found a padlock 
forced open that gave access to the airside part of the airport. The implication here was that perhaps someone had gained access to this area in order to plant the bomb. But security staff were aware of the broken padlock. They saw no unauthorised personnel on the tarmac that night and anyway, the area that the gate led from was also semi-secure. And of course, it didn't account for the piece of luggage that had been loaded in Frankfurt from Malta. In any event, the appeal against the conviction and life sentence was quickly dismissed by the five justices and Megrahi was flown by helicopter from the Netherlands to his new home in Barlini Prison in Glasgow, Scotland. He was housed in a secure unit in the ageing building and a small Libyan delegation was sent to Glasgow to ensure that al-Megrahi's needs were met. In 2003, Libya made a $2.7 billion payment as compensation to the victims' families. This wasn't as a result of the guilty verdict, however, but as a direct result of the UN resolution to allow some of the sanctions against the country to be discontinued. The tide against Libya and Gaddafi had turned, and while the case file on the Lockerbie bombing remained open, meetings with world leaders like Tony Blair and Bill Clinton were held. That file was open because no one really thought it was likely that al-Megrahi had acted alone in the bombing. It was unlikely that a Libyan agent had acted without the knowledge or direction of someone high up in the regime, but given the state of international politics at the time, looking further into who had approved or organised the bombing was unlikely. In fact, in a Washington Times article in 2003, Gaddafi himself said that Lockerbie had, quote, originally been an Iranian retaliatory terrorist attack for the downing by the US Navy of a peaceful Iran Air Airbus on its daily run across the Strait of Hormuz. Nobody in our part of the world believed the US government when it said it was an accidental occurrence, so the Iranians subcontracted part of the job to a Syrian intelligence service, which in turn asked the Libyan Mukhabarat to handle part of the assignment. This is the way these things were planned in those days. If we had initiated the plot, we would have made sure the accusing finger was pointed in the other direction, and we would have picked Cyprus, not Malta, where some of the organisation was done. The others picked Malta, presumably to frame us. End quote. In the meantime, Al-Megrahi changed his legal team and lodged a review with the Scottish Criminal Case Review Commission. This is an extrajudicial board that was charged with reviewing cases where a miscarriage of justice was alleged and to make recommendations as to whether the Court of Appeal should review said cases. Megrahi's case was submitted in 2003, but the Commission did not give their conclusions regarding the case until 2007. They said that the delay was due to the complexities of the case, though the Commission rejected any aspect of the case put to them that seemed to imply there was a conspiracy against al-Megrahi, such as planted evidence and so on. It did find that there were six grounds that should be considered for referral back to the Court of Appeal. Their main concern seemed to be regarding the evidence given by Tony Gauci. The original court had noted that there was a lack of certainty over the date of the purchase in the shop, and that it was difficult to reconcile what Gauchi had described, in terms of what he remembered of the day, the football match and the weather, with the dates it was known that al was in Malta. 
There were the two dates that lined up with Gauchi being in the shop on his own, the 27th of November or the 7th of December. He also remembered rain, because the Libyan had purchased an umbrella. It had rained on the 27th, but it was very unlikely on the 7th of December. However, Al-Megrahi had most certainly not been in Malta on the 27th. It just didn't really add up to anything certain. There were also concerns raised about the identity parade, given that Gauchi had in fact seen a photo of Al-Megrahi before it had occurred in an article in a magazine about the bombing. It had also come to light that Gauchi had been paid $2 million and his brother $1 million by the US authorities. In Scotland, witness or jury members have a small out-of-pocket stipend that they are allowed, but payment for testimony is considered unacceptable. It would seem from the evidence uncovered that Gauchi had been aware of the possibility of a financial award. The possibility that it could have affected his testimony should be reviewed in the Commission's opinion. At the very least, the defence should have been aware of it at the time of trial and had the ability to question Gauchi about it. When these issues were referred back to the Court of Appeal, it was decided that a fresh appeal could indeed be heard, and they even allowed the defence to present aspects of their case that had not been identified as problematic by the Commission. But in September of 2008, Abdel Basset al-Megrahi was diagnosed with terminal prostate cancer. Unfortunately, the cancer had spread and his treatment options were limited. He began to receive palliative care. A month later, a prisoner transfer agreement was signed between the UK and Libya. It came into force in April of 2009. Of course, Libya, on behalf of al-Megrahi, applied for a prisoner transfer so that al-Megrahi could live out the last few months of his life in his home country. On the 24th of July 2009, an application for compassionate release was made on behalf of al-Megrahi by Libyan officials. In order for compassionate release to take place, there has to be no outstanding appeals or other court business. So shortly after, a formal application to withdraw al-Megrahi's appeal was lodged with the Scottish courts. The decision rested with the Scottish government at the time, which had been established only 10 years previously, and their justice secretary at the time, who was Kenny McGaskill. On the 20th of August 2009, after negotiations and the receipt of various medical reports, McGaskill announced the denial of the prisoner transfer application due to assurances that were given to victims' families that the sentence handed down to al-Megrahi would be served in Scotland. He had spoken with relatives of the victims and the US and UK governments. However, the announcement was made that compassionate release was granted in accordance with the laws and policy in place in Scotland at the time, considering that al-Megrahi was terminally ill and only had a short time to live. As the Scottish Justice Secretary announced the decision, al-Megrahi was packing his few possessions up and began his short-notice journey to a Scottish airport and then home to Libya. Later that evening, Scottish, British and US audiences watched as al-Megrahi's plane landed in Tripoli Despite the assurances given by Gaddafi's government, broadcast news showed that the plane landed amidst cheering crowds, some waving the Scottish flag of St Andrew, 
and Gaddafi's own son met the plane. It appeared to have been a hero's welcome. The decision to release al-Megrahi was always going to be criticised, but now, with this celebratory welcome home, the decision was thoroughly attacked, both in the UK and in the US. The UK had helpfully left the decision up to the relatively newly devolved Scottish government and was able to distance itself, therefore, from the backlash. As it turned out, there had only been about a hundred students brought to the airport to welcome Megrahi home. There had, however, been huge crowds in Green Square in Tripoli, an event totally unrelated to the dying man's return, but conflated in the reporting to give the impression of this huge, roaring crowd. Abdel Basset al-Megrahi didn't die until the 20th of May 2012, however. He survived long enough to write a book in his defence, stating he had had nothing to do with the Lockerbie bombing, and at one point he went missing as Libya was thrust into turmoil during the civil war in 2011, as part of the Arab Spring. In 2012, after a change in the legislation at the UK level, The Scottish Criminal Cases Review Commission report and conclusion was released to the public. With the information now public and in the context of the various alternate theories of what exactly had happened to cause the Lockerbie bombing, there were calls for a further inquiry into the matter. They came from politicians and the public on both sides of the Atlantic, as well as victims' families who wanted the full truth brought to light of how the bombing had been ordered and organised but if Scotland was to convene such an inquiry, it would be limited in what it could do. It would effectively be a rerun of what had occurred in the Netherlands and would lack the ability to call on people around the world from different countries to attend. It would likely be an exercise in futility. Another option would be to revive the appeal that was recommended by the SCCRC. Al-Megrahi's family weren't interested in doing this initially, and it was found in the Scottish courts that the families of the victims had no standing to attempt to bring the appeal on behalf of their interests in the proceedings. Though there had been some cooperation with the Libyan government before Al-Megrahi's death, that all changed when the country was plummeted into chaos after the First Civil War. Lockerbie was not a priority for the various factions now looking for control in the area. On top of that, none of them were terribly pleased with the millions of dollars the country had paid in reparations, considering that they were now facing severe shortages. So, with all that, and while the case files in Scotland and the US remained open, that seemed to be the end of any official story of what had happened at Lockerbie. There were rumours, though. One widely circulated in the US said that Iran had offered a $10 million bounty after an American military ship had brought down the civilian Iran Air Flight 655 in the midst of a skirmish in Iranian waters in 1988. Then there was the matter of a letter from the King of Jordan who named Palestine as responsible for the disaster. But this lack of further investigation or release of more information happened in the context of deals between the UK and Libya and the US and Libya. Trade deals were emerging between what had up to that point been considered as a rogue state, but commerce and deals were happening behind closed doors as relations warmed up. On top of that, Libya had stood out as one of the few North African or Middle Eastern countries resistant to the rise in fundamentalism. They provided information to the US and the UK in return for having their own dissidents return to the state 
training and medical supplies. That was, of course, until Gaddafi's death in 2012. Conspiracies abound regarding who or what organisation was responsible for the Lockerbie bombing. What was always sure throughout the trial of al-Megrahi was that he was far from the only person responsible. And given that his case was referred back to the Court of Appeal for a possible miscarriage of justice, it's far from certain that the conviction would have remained in place, given the amount of inferences drawn by the original three-judge panel. In fact, last year, in May 2018, it was announced by the Scottish Criminal Cases Review Commission that the review would be revived on McGrahy's behalf by his family. This was primarily due to the way the appeal had been dropped. McGrahy had known that for compassionate release, there could be no outstanding appeals or hearings in the case. So he dropped it. And for a time, it looked as if the victims and survivors, and indeed the people of Lockerbie, would be no closer to the truth. Many have gotten the blame over the years, people, organisations and states. The PFLPGC had strong ties to both Syria and Libya. Many of its members had served with Libyan forces in the past and were active in West Germany at the time of the bombing of Flight 108. Other rumours began doing the rounds as things began crumbling in Libya, with people high in Gaddafi's regime saying that Gaddafi himself had ordered the attack. There was a letter from the King of Jordan to the UK implicating the Palestinians and yet others linked the attack to the downing of Iran Air Flight 655 and their purported payment for a retaliatory attack. Whoever was directly responsible for the building of the bomb and its transport to Luha Airport in Malta, and however it managed to bypass security that was in place in both Frankfurt and Heathrow Airport, The Lockerbie bombing occurred in the context of war in the Middle East, and actions taken by the West in that area. To this day, it remains the most deadly terrorist attack to have occurred on British soil. Thank you for listening to Mens Rea, a true crime podcast. If you like what you heard, don't forget to subscribe and give a five-star rating. Or tell a friend. It really is the easiest way to support your favourite podcasts. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at mensreapod, or you can send an email to mensreapod at gmail.com. This podcast is made possible in part from generous donations by supporters on Patreon. Special thanks this week to Lynn Cantillion, Patty Phelan, and Shannon Randall. You guys are the best. Each and every one of my patrons helps to make sure that this podcast keeps going, and for that there are perks like stickers and magnets, and, more importantly, up to two monthly bonus episodes. Go check it out. Next time, we're back in Ireland, where a 14-year-old girl went missing from the care of the health services in 2006, which ultimately revealed a tragic story of neglect and abuse. Our theme music is Quinn's song The Dance Begins by Kevin MacLeod. This podcast was researched, written, and produced by me, your host Sinead. Sources for today's episode can be found in the show notes or on our website, www.mensreapod.com. Till next time, don't do anything I wouldn't do. The UN Commissioner for Namibia. For Namibia.
for Namibia, for Namibia, for Namibia, for Namibia, <laughs> Namibia, for Namibia, for Namibia, Namibia, for Namibia. The UN Commissioner, the UN Commissioner for Namibia. The UN Commissioner for Namibia. <laughs> Hi, everybody. I'm Simon. And I'm Matt. And together we host the Heist Podcast, a true crime podcast all about heist. That's right. We've covered everything, even Irish heists like the Brinks Allied Depot. And the Bugsy Malone Gang. But we also go around the world discussing the incredible Swedish helicopter heist. And a Portuguese counterfeiter that made so much money he tried to buy the National Bank. But don't worry, they're not always that high scale. Sometimes we just discuss one neighbor stealing meatballs from another neighbor's garage. And a dad who stole his daughter's Girl Scout cookie money and then tried to cover it up with a fake robbery. All that and more on each episode of our podcast. So check us out on... Hi! Hi.